Take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark, his ninth chapter. We took a break over the summer to look at the family, and now we're coming back to our exposition of the Gospel of Mark, and I, I feel like I'm coming home in a sense. It was uh, so wonderful to be spending time in these pages over the last few weeks preparing for this sermon, and I trust that it'll be a, a warming sensation spiritually in your own heart as we look more intimately at who Jesus is, what he has said, what he has done for us. We're going to get a running start this morning and a little bit of a review. So let me start by a passage we already looked at, but it has connection with what we're going to look at today. So Mark chapter 9, I'm going to begin reading at verse 1, but our sermon is going to be specifically addressing verses 9 to 13. Mark chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus was saying to them, these were his disciples, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His garments became radiant, exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth has, can ever whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. And they were coming down from the mountain and he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked him, saying, why is it that the scribes, the teachers, say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come. And they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the Son of Man, holy God in human flesh, is the most amazing and important person to have ever lived. His life is the most remarkable life ever lived. His words are the most important ever spoken by human lips. His actions were the most eventful and important ever experienced. His instruction was the wisest teaching to ever be heard. His death by execution on a Roman cross was the most meaningful death that has ever happened. And his resurrection 
from the dead, the most consequential event in the history of mankind. The only authoritative source for knowing and understanding these things about Jesus is the Bible. And the most important specific source material in the Bible are the Gospels, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. Four snapshots, four video vignettes in a verbal form of who Jesus is, what he said, what he taught, how he interacted, how he responded to sinners, how he responded to his disciples, how he faced death, how he rose from the dead. We've been studying one of these sources, and that's the Gospel of Mark. Mark's account of Jesus. Now, over the summer months, as I said, we, we took a break and studied um, marriage and the family. But today we're returning, picking up where we left off in Mark. And I want to help just for a few minutes reorient us where we are in Mark and what this book is about. The Gospel of Mark was written by John Mark of the book of Acts. It has a specific target. He was writing to a Gentile audience, probably a Greek audience, probably believers or those who would use this as a, an evangelism tract in Rome. He begins by saying this, Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The news about Jesus is good news. That's what the word gospel means. It's, it's the good news about Jesus. And the good news is because we all need a Savior, we have been given one by God in His Son, we are born sinners. We are born bound to our own selfishness. Just spend some time in the two-year-old department and that will be clarified. We are born in rebellion, selfish depravity and rebellion, overt and covert against God. One of the pillars of our theological foundations here at Mission Road Bible Church is we believe in the entire total depravity of man. Man is not born neutral. Kids are not born good. We are born with a stiff arm in God's face, rebels against God, choosing our own path, choosing our own way. And God, by gracious, immeasurable kindness and condescension, reaches down to a sinner like you and me and says... I am the way, I am the truth. I will be your life and you can come to the Father through me. His death was in place of ours who believe. God righteously thundered his wrath against every sinner who deserves eternity in hell, separation from God, death. The wages of sin is our own death and, and yet... The righteous son of God in the most unlikely display of love while we were yet sinners died for us. To prove that that was true, he was buried and on the third day he rose from the grave. Now sits at the right hand of God making intercession for the saints. That's good news. That's what Mark intends for us to understand as he unfolds these 16 chapters describing Jesus. The story Mark explains is the story of good news. But good news has a context of us understanding our own bad news. Um, if, if you have an issue with self-esteem, don't come to the Bible. We are helpless, ruthless, worthless worms, the Bible calls us, 
who are stiff-arming God and God in kindness saves us from ourselves, saves us from Satan, and saves us from his own wrath. That's good news. That's the way Mark begins, and that's what he explains in these 16 chapters. More than any of the other gospels, Mark follows a geographical path to the life of Jesus. He takes us on a journey that's actually easy to follow with, with, with a map. It's a perfectly scripted play comprised of three acts. Let me just remind you. Act one is Jesus' ministry in Galilee. That's verses uh, chapter one all the way through eight twenty one. He's in and around the Lake Galilee, north, south, east, and west. He's going around healing, uh, teaching uh, both Jews and Gentiles, feeding, creating food, making quite a stir, I would add. Then beginning in verse 22 of chapter eight, act two is Jesus moving from the north of Caesarea Philippi, just north of Galilee area, all the way down the Decapolis, down the Jordan River Valley, down toward Jerusalem. It's that traveling time. And then act three is Jesus arrives in Jerusalem beginning in chapter 11, verse one, and the rest of the gospel is occupied with that final week with Jesus in Jerusalem before his impending death. Now, differently than Matthew and Mark, remember there are two kinds of gospels. There's the synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which go chronologically through Jesus' life. And then John is a theological gospel, which was written some 30 years later, which doesn't reduplicate all those stories, but says, let's give a theological perspective as the disciple of Christ on who Jesus is and why we're to follow him and how we're to tell people about him. But the three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Follow pretty much the same pattern, but Mark is way more fast-paced. He's way more uh, Cliff's Notes. He's writing without a lot of Jewish background because he's writing predominantly to Gentile people who need the gospel. He highlights Mark, uh, Christ's identity as fully God and truly man. He shows us what it looks like for a fully human man to live a perfect dependent life on God and obedience while at the same time showing us that God is understandable best in human flesh. God became a man. His name, Jesus. Mark shows us Jesus' unique authority over his creation, over the hearts of men. He also calls us to discipleship and following him, as we'll see today. This is what it means to know, understand, and expect what it's like to follow the Lord now, coming to our passage today here in Mark chapter nine, remember that Jesus has just predicted his passion or his suffering. Look back at chapter eight, verse 31 for a moment. Chapter eight, verse 31. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Verse 31, he began to teach them that this son of man must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. That was way outside the expectation set of this man they had hitched their lives to. Can you imagine? He's demonstrated he can feed the crowds, he can heal the sick, he can raise the dead. He is beyond all messianic expectations. And in the height of that expectation, he stops them and says, listen, I'm going to Jerusalem. 
I'm going to suffer, be rejected, and be killed. You remember he was stating the matter plainly, and Peter, verse 32, took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. The disciple with the foot-shaped mouth pulls Jesus aside and says, no, I don't think this death thing is quite a good idea. You got the Messiahship down. I mean, look at the crowds. This is a movement. And Jesus sees the satanic attack to prevent him from, dissuade him from going to the cross and rebukes Peter. After that, the Lord takes three of his closest friends, Peter and James and John, up on, the text says a mountain, it's really more like a ridge, a high hill, and shows them his glory. Literally, the transfiguration, he peels back his flesh, shows them the divine imminent light that would be brighter than the sun, John says in Revelation 1. And two men show up with him. This is important. Moses and Elijah. Remember that. They affirm to these three disciples that Jesus is truly who he says he is. And the voice comes out of the cloud to affirm that as well. And now moving right after that, coming down the hill in our passage today, Jesus uses their fear, their misunderstanding, their dismay to teach them a critical lesson that's, that's, that's a part of our discipleship paradigm. Suffering precedes glory. It does in Elijah's life. It did in John the Baptist's life. It did in Jesus' life. It will in the disciples' life. And guess what? It does in your life and mine as well. This story, by the way, and others like it, reveal the disciples' complete lack of getting it. They don't understand it. And I, I was reflecting on this this week and it felt completely convicted and troubled how hard I am in my exegesis on the disciples. Those knuckleheads, they should have seen, they should have gotten it. These narratives reveal the disciples' lack of understanding were not to put shame on them. Nowhere do these, is there a footnote that says, those knuckleheads. You know what? If you and I had been there, we would have had issues too. I mean, imagine the, the, the amazing momentum of Jesus in all he had done and taught. I mean, he raised Jairus's, raised the dead. And then by the way, as wonderful as it is, I'm gonna go die. And raised from the dead. Rise from the dead. I just want us to remember these stories are in our Bibles to show us that we can understand what they did and they are not intended for us to beat these poor men up. You would have been confused too. And that's gonna be evident as we work through our text. Now, as we look at verses nine to 13, in these verses, I wanna identify with you this a progression. Three progressive disclosures about Jesus' glory through suffering. Jesus is gonna take the time to teach them a lesson that glory comes after, because of, and through suffering, but it's gonna be progressive. Three progressive disclosures about Jesus' glory through suffering. The genius of the Lord is evident here. The genius of Mark in recording it like he does is evident as well. The first progressive disclosure is in verses nine and 10. The mystery of glory through suffering revealed. It's a mystery. 
The mystery, the conundrum, the unexpected reality, the paradox of glory, goodness, through suffering, trial, revealed. Verse 9. As they, that's Peter, James, John, and Jesus, were coming down from the mountain, that high ridge in Caesarea Philippi, where he had brought them alone to see his glory, and with him Moses and Elijah had shown up. They were coming down from that mountain, down for that time. He gave them orders, strongest command possible, an imperative, not to relate to anyone what they had seen. This is the secrecy motif that Mark continues to go back to. He basically raises Jairus' daughter and says, don't tell anybody. Can you imagine that? I mean, how, how do you not tell everybody? Why was Jesus continuing to tell people, don't tell people what I've done? Wasn't that the reason that he came? Yes, but there was a catch. And we find it out clearly explained right here. Don't relate to anyone what they had seen, the transfiguration, the glory of Christ, Moses and Elijah, until, that means they were gonna to get to proclaim it, until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Why? At that point, the gospel would have been complete. The narrative would have been closed. All the facts would have been articulated and lived out. All the theological explanation would have been there fully more explained in the epistles because they were then telling people what had happened. This tells us that the gospel is not complete until the resurrection. Paul told the, the Corinthians, without the resurrection, people should feel sorry for us. We are lost in our sins. The resurrection would be the final affirming stamp of the good news of the gospel. And we'll see that as Mark concludes. Now look at their response. They seized upon that statement. Literally, they jumped on it, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. This is incredible to me. Back in 831, he says, guys, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Wouldn't this be welcome news? And I'm going to rise from the dead. And they're like, hmm, wonder what that means. Imagine the experience of coming down that mountain after seeing the transfiguration, hearing the voice of the Father himself coming out of the cloud, witnessing Moses and Elijah standing there. And again, I, I don't know if Jesus said, hey, Moses, hey, Elijah, I don't know if they had divine name tags. We don't know, but they were identifiable. They knew exactly who was there. How do you debrief about that event? What do you say to each other? Did you see that? Well, of course I saw that. I mean, what do you say? Well, Jesus didn't, didn't give them a chance to debrief on that because he inserted this. You can tell people all about this, but not now. But after I'm dead, and get out of the grave, then you can tell everybody. Go back again. Let's read the fuller context again. Chapter 8, verse 31. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, be killed, and after three days rise again. Now, I'm, I'm not a genius but that seems pretty straightforward. 
they go up on the hill. They've seen all that Jesus has done. They've heard all that Jesus has said. They've witnessed the dead rise and healed any sickness and disease and deformity. And they see Jesus and Moses and Elijah, and they are on a high. And Jesus reminds them again, I'm going to rise from the dead. And then you can tell people, but not until then, why they would get the wrong idea that, that the Messiah is just a welfare king who can feed you and heal you and keep you whole and happy. That wasn't the good news. They've already seen that Jesus has the power to resurrect the dead. Remember Jairus' daughter in Mark 5? He raised that little girl from the dead. So when he says resurrection from the dead, they had some context for this. But the gospel was going to be incomplete without his death and resurrection. To spread the news about a Messiah who could heal the sick, raise the dead, feed the hungry, overthrow possibly the, the Roman government, that was not his mission, that was not his message. They were confused and we can imagine why. If the Son of Man is to be raised from the dead, then back in verse 8.21 has to be collated with that. That means he, you have to die before you can rise from the dead. And the disciples are completely unprepared for any thought that the Messiah must suffer and die before his entrance to glory, so much so that Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him to try to talk him out of such a plan. So the mystery is revealed. Listen, you've seen my glory, but we won't fully enjoy that glory that you saw up on the Mount of Transfiguration until after I've raised from the dead, which means that I will die, which means that suffering precedes glory. So the mystery of glory through suffering is revealed in verses 9 and 10. A second progressive disclosure is in verse 11. Confusion about glory through suffering confessed. You have to love the honesty of these men. They asked him saying, now, now let's listen, let's, let's stand in their togas for a second. You can tell everybody what you saw after I rise from the dead. Of the countless questions you could ask about that statement, would this one come to mind? Um, teacher, why is it that the scribes say, Elijah must come first? Where did that come from? Where in the world did that come from? Ah, there's a clue. Look at their data points. Jesus has just taught them about the coming judgment in 838 through 91. They have just seen Elijah, who's long dead at the transfiguration. They also knew that Elijah must come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Listen to Malachi chapter four, verse five. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah. This is long after Elijah had been dead. The Lord says through Malachi, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Back to chapter 8. 
27. Let's look at the context of this Elijah expectation. The people were expecting that Elijah would come. Now, quick question. Did they think that Elijah would be reincarnated or raised from the dead? No, no, no. This was at like at the end of Haggai uh, where the, the, he says, I'm going to tell Zerubbabel, I'm going to come and restore the kingdom. I'm going to shake the ground. I'm going to judge all the nations. There's going to be havoc on the earth and the kingdom will be established through you, Zerubbabel. That wasn't Zerubbabel. He was in the line of the Messiah. It was representation that was going to happen. Same thing as here in Elijah. So such that the people were expecting a forerunner in the spirit of Elijah to come. Listen to what the people said. Verse 27, chapter eight. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, not far north of Galilee. On the way, he questioned his disciples saying, hey guys, Who do people say that I am? Isn't this interesting? They told him saying, John the Baptist. Not literally reincarnate, but the spirit of John the Baptist, the preacher in that message of repentance. Others say who? Elijah. And others, one of the prophets, another another prophet. They actually had such an expectation that a prophet like Elijah would come with marvelous wonders, with with amazing words. And people were beginning to say, you know, Jesus, he might be the forerunner. He might be Elijah. He might be the one we're expecting. The question at hand is obvious in the context. They just saw Elijah. Was that a fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy? The question the three men asked is significant. Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Why would they ask that? They just saw Elijah. Wouldn't they think, okay, Elijah's coming first. He was up there. We saw him. This was their response to the Lord's prediction about his coming suffering, his death, his resurrection. They are suggesting that Elijah's return to restore all things should negate the need of the Son of Man to suffer because he would restore all things. You don't need to die. Elijah's gonna take care of everything. I think it's likely that they thought, we just saw Elijah, maybe we'll see him again and he will do this restoration work. The reference again is to that final passage in Malachi 4, 5 to 6. They understood that Elijah was to be the forerunner to the Messiah. But Isaiah also talked about a forerunner. In Isaiah 40, verses 3 and 4, a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord. Clear it in the wilderness. Make smooth the desert in the, high, in the desert, a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become plain and the rugged terrain a broad way. And in Matthew 3, we find out that that passage is applied to John the Baptist. And Jesus is about to reveal and clarify that Elijah has come and the spirit of Elijah was fulfilled. The forerunner of Isaiah Isaiah was fulfilled in his cousin, John the Baptist, which brings us to the third progressive disclosure. 
the mystery, the confusion stated, and now he clarifies it. Clarity about glory through suffering divulged. He takes all the mystery away. He satisfies all the confusion in verse 12. He said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things. A direct quote from from Malachi 4. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he, not Elijah, that he, the Son of Man, will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Now, before they can answer the question, he makes a statement. But I say to you, before you give us an answer, any answer, Jesus says, Elijah has indeed come. And they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. This clarifies the whole matter. Let me explain it to you. If you look at the logic of Jesus' words in a slightly rearranged format in these verses, going verse 12, verse 13, and verse 12 again, here's what's happening. Elijah must come before the Messiah. It's clear. He's the forerunner. He's going to come make things ready, restore all things, prepare the way for the Messiah. Verse 13, Elijah has come and he suffered. Then back to verse 12, the son of man preceded by Elijah is going to suffer too as prophesied. Jesus explains in verse 13 to them, listen, Elijah has already come and they did to him whatever they wanted. Now, rewind the tape a few hours. They saw Elijah standing with Moses, affirming Jesus, conversing with the Lord. Did the people at the transfiguration do with and to Elijah anything they wanted? No. He wasn't talking about the literal Elijah who in a resurrected form showed himself to those three. This was the spirit of Elijah who would come and be a forerunner. And when did that happen? Was that at the transfiguration? No. The Lord tells them that the people did whatever they wished as prophesied. Elijah is said to be the forerunner to the Son of Man, the Messiah. Jesus is clearly pointing to John the Baptist as the coming of Elijah. I think this is explicit in Matthew 3, 1 to 12, where he says the forerunner comes and they will treat him with contempt before they treat the Son of God with contempt. Now, let's take a step back. What is going on here? Jesus is overriding their understanding and his overriding principle is that suffering precedes glory. It did for Elijah, it did for John the Baptist, and it will for him and... It will for the disciples and for you and me as well. Suffering precedes, suffering now rather precedes glory later. For the Lord, for his disciples, and for you and me. Now, if you looked carefully at the title for this morning, I called it an overgrown path. Why is this an overgrown path? You know, I I like to, hike and hunt and I love to spend time in the woods. And oftentimes there's a path, either animal-made or man-made, that's very clear that this was once a trail. And sometimes you'll find 
that that trail is overgrown by thistles and by thorns and by weeds and by plants, by trees sometimes, by, by undergrowth and overgrowth. And it over, overgrows the path, but the path is still there and recognizable. I think you should think about the death and suffering and even the resurrection of Jesus like an overgrown path in their minds in the Old Testament. They should have seen the path, but it had been overgrown with unrealistic and unbiblical expectations. In other words, the concept of the suffering servant was clear as a bell where? In Isaiah 53, good. But that was not, in, in all the Jewish studies that, that scholars have found in what we call second temple nomism, their, their idea of obeying the law and fulfilling the law in the second temple, which would have been, been Herod's temple that they were worshiping in in Jerusalem at that time. Lots to talk about Elijah, lots to talk about the Messiah, lots to talk about the kingdom. Almost no recorded thoughts about Isaiah 53. And to this day, if you're evangelizing a Jew and you go to Isaiah 53, you get instant nervousness. They don't know what to do with this. This, this is clearly evident. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter eight? He just goes up to Jerusalem. He's on his way back. He meets Philip and he's reading Isaiah 53. And what's his question? Um, who's this about? Is this about... Isaiah, because this is not how Isaiah's life went. This is not the significance of Isaiah's vicarious life and death for sinners. Who, who is this about, himself or someone else? Philip gets in the chariot, they drive, and he explains to him that Isaiah 53 was about Jesus. Can I just remind you of that? You're welcome to turn there. I think it might be good just to slowly listen to what should have been in their expectation and understanding. This is what Jesus is referring to. It starts back in Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up. He will be greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. I just imagine the marred face and body of Jesus, beaten times that number, scourged where flesh was ripped from his back, a bag put over his head saying, prophesy, who is the one hitting you? And they would punch him repeatedly in the face. Then a crown of four-inch thorns pressed into his scalp, then hit with a stick to pound it in. He was marred more than any other man, more than the former, any other, the other of the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. Then in 53, who has believed our message? Boy, what a question. Who has believed the suffering servant and his death for the sins of those who believe? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who gets it? For he grew up before him 
like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him as he was growing up in Nazareth as a young man, as a child, as a teen. No one saw him as the king of the world, and yet he was. He was despised, forsaken of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief or suffering. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Listen to this vicarious, substitutionary thought. Surely our, our griefs, our suffering, he himself bore. Our sorrows, he carried. Yet, we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Even his own men ran from the cross. He was pierced through for our, for my, for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging, we are healed. His scourging heals us. All of us, not some, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way but the Lord. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Christian, can you marinate your heart in that reality? The iniquity for which we deserve fell on him and he was punished for us. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, no defense. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before a shearer, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and by judgment, he was taken away. By judgment, he was walked alone to Calvary. By judgment, not his, yours. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off the land of living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, substitutionary atonement, we deserve that he did it even though it was due us in the full invited reception of God's wrath. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. We know that narrative well. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. Some of the most stunning words in the scriptures. The father was pleased to crush his son. Putting him to grief or to sorrow. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. Guilt offerings were things that you offered, not something you were. He was our guilt offering. 
He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. There's glory after suffering. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. God will be satisfied by the death of his son on behalf of sinners who believe. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify their salvation language, justify the many, many as he, it's just almost hard to read, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong. There is glory afterwards because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Back to Mark. Don't you see, verse 12, how it is written that the Son of Man, that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Where do they see that? They knew Isaiah. They read Isaiah. They had large portions of Isaiah memorized. It was one of the most used scrolls in the synagogue. But the idea under the Roman yoke that they would have a glorious, conquering, warrior, king, Messiah who would not reign in totality until after he had suffered on behalf of sinners that was beyond their desire and beyond their expectation. Oh, we have a great warrior king who will come one day with his robe dipped in blood, who will conquer the earth with the sword of his own word coming out of his mouth and sinners will fall in judgment. But before that great day was the day where he was judged for us. It's so easy to see the suffering and trouble in this world as overwhelming and lasting while forgetting that there's a coming glory in the future. Jesus is teaching the men this based on Elijah himself, their experience, and for you and me. This world is a cesspool of suffering. Why do we continue to try to make this world heaven? Be careful what you wish for. If this world is everything we want, who would ever want to go to heaven? What do we take away from this passage? What do we take away? Well, I think we should always remember what we're critical of the disciples about, that we understand Acts chapter 2, verse 23, that this man, Jesus, was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Listen, Christian, never, never move from the epicenter of the cross that Jesus was no victim and the cross was no accident. He was unjustly punished based on his own life, willingly, justly punished instead of us. He didn't deserve it. He took our judgment. This 
narrative drips with the cross and with atonement and with the admonition to remember Isaiah 53 and who that man who is healing and teaching and judging and feeding who he really is. What are your expectations this side of eternity? What do you expect? I think Jesus is doing multi-layered things here. He's talking about his own impending atonement and death and resurrection. He's talking about how they treated John the Baptist. They had just killed him, but he's now in glory, suffering before glory. He's preparing the disciples. Mark's whole protocol here is to prepare the disciples for, for discipleship. And their lives would all bear out the truth that suffering would precede their glory. How can you and I look at this passage and look at this truth and say that was them and not us? Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Peter says, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal that's about to come upon you. When you suffer for doing what's right, when you suffer for being righteous, do you find yourself shocked and awed? Doesn't God know I'm on his side? How could this possibly happen? Just remember your Lord. You know, the more I, the more I listen to Jesus' words, the more I am convinced, frighteningly, and I really mean frighteningly and trepidatiously, that true Christian faithfulness is a lightning rod for persecution and suffering and a lack of any form of persecution or suffering may call into question our faithfulness. Remember, the Lord said, Son of man will suffer, be treated with contempt. Elijah has come. John the Baptist has come. And they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. One of the glorious truths of gospel narrative, of the Bible narrative, this sounds odd. I hope you understand theologically that it looks like we all lose before we win. Don't expect the full display of the king and his kingdom before he establishes it. What are your expectations for this side of eternity? Just reading through Isaiah 53 just makes me want to run to the Savior and say, thank you. Why would you do that for me? You know me, and you did that anyway. All of my sins and thought, indeed, in jealousy, in lust, in anger, in rage, in retribution, in not being correctable, into overcorrecting, all of those things Jesus saw and said, You deserve death, but I will die for that instead of you. May God never let us wander far 
from that unspeakable reality of his sacrifice for us.